When we began our series in the book of Ephesians last time, uh, a couple weeks back, I told you that this book can be divided into two main sections. And it begins in chapters 1 through 3, dealing with our position in Christ. This is the doctrinal foundation that Paul is laying for us as he uh, begins this book. Now, as we come back to chapter 1 today, we're going to come to a, a doctrine called dispensationalism. Now, if you were here two weeks ago, you'll recall we looked at another light and easy doctrine called predestination and election. And as I shared with my wife that we were going to be looking at dispensationalism today, uh, she said, do you remember that time when we were back in seminary and we were having uh, dinner over at the Honer's home? Now, if you've ever heard my testimony, you know that Harold and Jenny Honer were like a surrogate family to me. Um, I spent a lot of time in their home and I even came to faith on a family vacation with the Honers. Now, Harold Honer was a uh, world-renowned scholar in theology. I didn't know that at the time. He was just my best friend's father. But later, when I went to Dallas Theological Seminary, I came to understand who Harold Honer was. And he was probably known as one of the world's greatest theologians when it came to the book of Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians, as we've seen, is just a small book, six chapters long. Well, Harold wrote this commentary that's 930 pages long. And so you can imagine the weight of the question when we were sitting, Kim and I were at uh, the table having dinner with Harold and Jenny, and Harold casually uh, says to my wife, are you a dispensationalist? Now, (laughs) my wife kind of froze, and she leaned over and whispered to me, am I? And I whispered back, just smile and nod yes. (laughs) So as we're here today and I talk about dispensationalism, if I were to ask you that question, are you a dispensationalist? You may say, I don't know, Roger, am I? And somebody here may be thinking, well, does it really matter because I don't usually have dinner with theologians who want to know, am I a dispensationalist? So why does it really matter? Why are we even talking about this today? Well, we're talking about it because Paul reveals this to us. He had the Holy Spirit, superintended the writing of God's Word as we know, and he had Paul write about this doctrine. And the reason for that is, as we saw, the book begins with doctrine, our position, because it lays a foundation for us as Christians, and it it informs us as to how we're to live our lives. As I look out this morning, I don't see anybody who brought an animal sacrifice with them this morning. So that tells me one of two things about our congregation. Either we are a sanctuary filled with perfect people because nobody sinned at all this past week and there's no need for anybody here to offer animal sacrifice for their sins if we were living under the dispensation of the Levitical law, or it tells me that all of you here are saying that you live under the dispensation of grace. Now, to understand more specifically what that means, I invite you to turn with me in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 1. Because what we're going to do is look at verses 9 through 12 this morning. In it, in Ephesians 1, 9 and following, uh, Paul writes, He made known to us the mysteries of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things upon the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. 
Now you can see why Harold wrote 930 pages on this book. In verse 9, Paul writes, God made known to us the mysteries of his will. Now, the mystery here is not like when you read a, a mystery novel. Uh, when God uses the word mystery and he talks about making it known, what he's telling us is there's a previously hidden truth that now God wants us to know about. As you read through the Bible in John 15, 15, Jesus tells us, No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. And when we looked at predestination and election last time, what we saw is that was a part of God's plan. We saw how from the beginning of time, before the foundations of the earth were in place, God revealed to us his plan to save us, to adopt us as sons and daughters of God. And as we read here, Paul pulls back the curtain a little further, and he gives us another peek behind the curtain into God's master plan. He says in verse 10, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things upon the earth in him. Now, if you're using a King James version of the Bible this morning, there in verse 10, you see the word dispensation. Dispensation is the Latin word that translates the Greek word that is used here. In theology, a lot of our words come from the Latin. Rapture, rapturo, means to be caught up. The millennial kingdom, the thousand years, that's the Greek word kylia that means a thousand. And here when we see dispensation, it's the Greek word oikonomia. It's where we get our English word economy. It's made up of two words. Oikos means a house, and nomia means the law. So it's the house law, and what it means is to divide, to apportion, or administer. It speaks of a stewardship, the economy, or the administration. Now, if all of that is a bit confusing, what it describes for us is a person who manages the affairs of an inhabited house. Some of you uh, think in terms of the Old Testament, the managers or stewards who, who oversaw, they were the treasurer and they took care of things. And when it comes to our world, what it's telling us is God is uh, administering or managing and running, ordering things in this world according to his plan. Now, when it comes to God and his plan, there's a, a mistaken critique of dispensationalism that says, well, dispensationalists believe that God saved people at different ways at different times throughout history, and that's not correct. Uh, the Bible teaches that there has only been one method of salvation from the beginning of time. God's plan revealed from the book of Genesis forward has always been that we would be saved through the promised Messiah who would come. And when it comes to dispensationalism, they agree with this and say God has always had just one plan. Now, what dispensationalism does say is God's management or the way he has interacted with mankind has changed over time. You can think in terms of it this way. Have you ever driven up the road and seen a sign that says, under new management? And when you pass an establishment and you see under new management, you're not thinking, oh gosh, I wonder if that tire shop is now going to sell clothing, or is it going to be a toy store? You know that it's going to continue to be uh, that automotive service place, but what they're telling you is going to change is not the stock on the shelf. What they're advertising is the way you are dealt with in this establishment will change. They're usually trying to promise you the service is going to be better. There's going to be a different way uh, that you're treated when you walk into that establishment. 
And when it comes to God's plan that's been unfolding throughout human history, God is not changing the stock on the shelf. He's not changing the way we're saved. But what he is changing is the way that we are dealt with in that establishment called this household called earth. As Paul talks about the different times here, he uses the Greek word kairos. Now, kairos speaks of an epoch or an age. There's another Greek word, chronos, uh, that speaks of like ticks on a clock or pages in a day timer that speaks of time in smaller segments. But as Paul uses this and says there are the kairos, the times that speak of the administration, the economia, the way God is working with us, what Paul's telling us is there are very large segments of human history that he's dealing with here. Now, when it comes to the dispensations, uh, my purpose this morning is not to walk you through the difference between covenant theology and dispensationalism. Uh, I know there are covenant theology folks among us, and that's wonderful. Uh, I'm a dispensationalist, and I'm not here this morning to debate whether there are three, five, seven, eleven dispensations. I want us to walk through the passage as Paul uh, develops it for us, which is to tell us, remember the overarching theme so far in Ephesians chapter 1 has been the grace of God. The way that we're saved is through grace. Remember verses 1 through 14 are one single sentence. And as Paul is revealing these doctrines, he's just piling them on one on top of each other. And if any of this starts to feel a little overwhelming this morning, I want you just to stop and remember what we're talking about is grace. God's great grace because when we as men and women sinned, when we turned our back on God, God could have very easily just said, you walked away from me, I'm done with you, and turned his back on us. But what Paul is revealing to us again today is the grace of God, how God didn't walk away from us. Instead, he sought after us. He, he went and bought us and he saved us. So in terms of what dispensationalism shows us, it's the Bible tells us that as mankind's history began on the earth, there was a period of innocence. You can read the book of Genesis, and you see that when God created man and woman, they were in the garden and there was perfection. We're told that, that they interacted face to face. Sin had not entered the world. There was no, this was the pre-fall period, and so they walked and talked together. But then you'll remember that man and woman, Adam and Eve, chose to disobey God. He said, you can eat of any of the the Garden of Eden. You can eat everything here except for one thing, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as soon as Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, this brought in the the period that dispensationalists call the time of conscience because they were suddenly made aware of things that were evil, like the fact it says before that they were naked and not ashamed, but now they hid themselves. So they they now had a knowledge of evil, whereas before they were in this period of innocence. And God in his mercy did not want to leave man and woman in their corrupted state uh, for all eternity. Had they eaten of the tree of life, they would have continued in this state. So it says that God removed them from the garden. You'll remember he, he offered an animal sacrifice. He, he covered them with skins. There was blood that was shed on their behalf. But you see those little dots after conscience. And the reason those are there is, as I said, we're not going to go through uh, all of what dispensationalism teaches today, but there's, there's a couple of things that come after, the period of government and then the period of promise. 
after the flood when Noah was, uh, mankind came out of the boat and there was this period of human government that was implemented. And you remember Noah got drunk and there was failure there. And then the period of promise was when God uh, set up the line that would come through Abraham ultimately to uh, the promised one, the line of Judah that would come from that line. But what we're sticking with today is Paul's focus on how we're saved. And so what Paul reveals to us is after uh, this period, the Mosaic law came into effect. The, the Levitical law and was given where man could no longer approach God face to face in perfection. They now had to bring a sacrifice. I said earlier, nobody this morning brought in an animal sacrifice. But as you read in the Levitical law, it said, when we sinned, we would offer a sacrifice. Blood has to be shed. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so God had set up this new way, this new administration of approaching God. We would come with the covering of blood. And then from that time, we came into a period of grace. And this is where we're currently at, this period of grace. Now, we've seen in the Bible, in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. Remember, I said there was a shedding of blood earlier, and yet as you read in Hebrews, it tells us this in Hebrews 10, 4 through 5. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Now, there in Hebrews, what it's speaking of is how the animal sacrifices were insufficient to remove sin. But do you remember what was said of Jesus Christ when he came? Jesus Christ was fully God. He took on flesh and blood. Hebrews says that he's prepared a body. Why was a body prepared for Christ? Why did God have to take on flesh and blood? Well, as you read in John 1.29, as John the Baptist saw Jesus Christ coming, he pointed at him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So there was still the shedding of blood to remove sin, but there was now a perfect and permanent sacrifice that was being offered on our behalf. And this is that issue of grace that we saw in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Now, going back to this illustration I used earlier of the new management, and I said God hasn't changed the stock on the store shelf. It's not saying that you used to be saved through blood sacrifice and now you're saved through the sacrifice of Jesus. Uh, The sacrifices that were offered were only a temporary covering that could not remove sin as we saw there in Hebrews 10, 4 and following. So how were people saved? If nothing has changed in God's method of salvation, but his way of interacting has changed throughout the ages, uh, where is this foundation of faith? Well, you can go all the way back to the book of Genesis. The, the patriarch of the Hebrew line was a man by the name of Abraham. And when it comes to Abraham, in Genesis fifteen six, it says, He believed in the Lord, and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. There you see that it was faith that saved Abraham. The book of Romans in the New Testament reaffirms this, as it tells us in Romans 4, 3 through 8, For what does the Scripture say? And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. 
Just as David also speaks of the blessing upon man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. As you read the book of Hebrews, there's something called the Hall of Faith, and it speaks of the great uh, men and women of the past. And as you read the Hall of Faith, it tells us in Hebrews 11:39 through 40, and all of these, having gained approval through what? Their faith. They did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. You see, the saints of old were saved in the same way we are today, which is by faith alone. The dispensation, the way God has interacted with us, has changed. The method of salvation is the same all throughout history. As we look at these different dispensations, the one that is still to come is called the millennial kingdom. I told you earlier, millennial means a thousand. And the millennial kingdom is a time coming where God is once again on this earth going to interact with man and woman in a different way. He will again interact with us face to face. You can read the Old Testament book of Zechariah. In Zechariah 14, uh, 16, it tells us that God is going to be resident on the earth, physically present. Jesus Christ at his second coming will be physically here on the earth. He will be seated on the Davidic throne in Jerusalem. And it says the nations of the earth are going to come and see God face to face here on the earth. We who are believers will see God again face to face. The sin that we have committed is removed from us. There's nothing that keeps us uh, from the presence of God when we die. Second Corinthians 5, 8 says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. When our time on this earth ends, either through our physical death or if the Lord's uh, time of the rapture comes and we're caught up to meet the Lord in the air, we will again interact with God face to face, just as happened during the, the time of perfection in the garden. Now, as we talk about the millennial kingdom and what's coming, uh, there is a, one of the tenets, one of the foundational beliefs that is found in dispensationalism is that the, the nation of Israel uh, has promises, covenants that God is yet to fulfill with Israel. Uh, there are some in the covenant theological realm that see the church as having replaced Israel and some of the promises yet to come, but dispensationalists have a literal interpretive uh, view of the scriptures that say what God has said will be fulfilled just as he said. And when it comes to the nation of Israel, during that thousand-year reign, there are specific promises given to the nation of Israel that we will see uh, happening. And this is what is being talked about here in verse 10. It says, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things upon the earth in him. When we get to Ephesians 3, verses 2 through 3, Paul will write these words. If indeed you have heard of the stewardship, there's our word again, oconomia. If indeed you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation here was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote about before in brief. That's what we're looking at right now, what he wrote about before in brief. Now, what exactly is Paul talking about? If you felt overwhelmed to this point, brace yourself. Because, 
If you've been at Wayside any length of time, you've seen my slide here. And uh, this, this gives us the picture of God's overarching plan. Now, I see a few iPhones coming out to take pictures of this. You don't have to write. You don't have to take pictures of this. Anytime I put any slide up, they're always on our website. You can just go to the sermon section, and all of the slides are there. So you can take and walk through all of this uh, in the comfort of your home and spend all the time you want digesting it. But let me just give you the, the summary view, since that's what we're doing today. If you look at where the cross is, this is what we find in Daniel chapter 9, uh, when it's the 77s and it talks about the Messiah will be cut off. This was looking ahead. Remember, the Old Testament prophets were looking ahead to the time when the promised Messiah would come and would go to the cross and be crucified, Jesus Christ. Read Isaiah 53. I love to, to speak with Jewish rabbis and go to Isaiah 53 and say, who does this point to? It points to the Messiah, and it speaks of the crucifixion of Jesus before that was even invented as a method of execution. It speaks of his death with with the thieves and how he'll be buried with a rich man in his tomb, in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. It says he'll be with a rich man in his death. And so God was revealing the mystery of his plan all along. And what he said is, my son will come and he will die. The Messiah will be cut off. And then you see the church age. That's the period of time we're living in right now. If you were here when we went through the series in the book of Acts right before Ephesians, you'll recall that we saw the church was birthed at the day of Pentecost. And so from the time of Pentecost until what I believe will be the rapture, will be the the time when the the Bible tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4, all the believers will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And as the Holy Spirit, the restrainer is removed from the earth, this will be the end of the church age, and it will begin that period called the tribulation. Again, as you read the 77s, it speaks of that final seven-year period, that horrible time uh, that will take place. And then you see the millennium. Remember, the millennial kingdom is that dispensation yet to come, where Christ will return physically at his second coming. Zechariah speaks of how Jesus will stand on the Mount of Olives. It will be split in half. He physically returns to the earth. That's different from when we're caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And as he's seated on the throne here on the earth, and man and the nations are coming and interacting with God face to face, it's this new dispensation. And so as we look at what is happening and what's going to come, verses 7 through 8 tell us how this all comes about. It says, in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. This is telling us how we're saved. It's not through the works of the law. It's through what Jesus did. When we looked at the passage in Ephesians previous to this, we saw that the Greek word used for redemption there was apolutrosim. And this is a word that means redemption. And you'll recall that it means to release from captivity. It speaks of paying the ransom price that was owed. And this is how we are saved. Jesus Christ came and he paid that penalty of death. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. That's why Christ had to come and go to a cross. Jesus had to die because all of us as sinners owe a penalty of death. And it goes on to say, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is what this dispensation of grace is about. Christ came, he redeemed us, he paid our penalty. 
Now, the verb of the tense, the tense of the verb there is present and continuous. God's forgiveness is present and ongoing. It covers the penalty of our sin and those throughout the ages. Now, it's this position that we have in Christ. But if you want to know what our position was before Christ, flip over a page to Ephesians 2, 12 through 13. Because it tells us our position was that we were lost and without hope. It says, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He's speaking of those of us who are of Gentile descent. There there are people here at Wayside who are Jewish by birth who have come to know the Messiah, Jesus Christ. They're called Messianic or completed Jews. But the majority of us were Gentiles. And what it says is we were outside of the covenants of promise for the nation of Israel. He says we were lost just as the Jews were. But he says we, we had no hope. We were not even part of the people who had a promise of things to come. Except that God's plan included us. Because it says in Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Now, this Greek word for forgiveness means to carry away. Isn't that a beautiful picture? It says God has taken our sins and he has carried them away. It speaks of the release of captives, the cancellation of a legal charge, a financial obligation, or some punishment. Now, to get a taste of what this means, I want you to imagine for a moment that you're deep, deep in debt. And you're going, well, that's not hard to do, Roger. That's me. Uh, Well, let's imagine it is really, really bad. You're bankrupt. You're you're on the the edge of losing everything. The the bill collectors are calling. People are knocking on your door. They're they're coming to repossess and take everything. And you, you are broke, and you have no way of paying your bills. But then suddenly somebody shows up and they say, I want to cover your debts. They pay off all your credit cards, all your medical bills, your student loans. They cover every single debt you owe to anybody, anywhere. All accounts are closed, paid in full. How are you feeling right now? Pretty good, right? But it gets even better. Because imagine that not only have you had all of your debts canceled and paid in full, but then the person hands you a card and they say, here's a card to an ATM that has a bank account with unlimited resources. It's all yours. That's what God did for us. Remember we saw earlier that we have, he- we have a heavenly inheritance. God has blessings for us to come. We saw there's more to come and more to come. A better way of understanding what we were facing is instead to imagine yourself being strapped in an electric chair. You are guilty of a capital crime. And you are strapped into the electric chair. You're all ready for your execution. The person has their hand on the switch. They're about to throw it and you're about to die. And at that moment as they're starting to move the switch to to execute you, somebody runs into the room, pushes the switch up and says, no, they're free. Here's a full and complete pardon. They're, 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 it's not that we've been found innocent, it's that we've received a full pardon. And they say, you're guilty, you're deserving of death, but your penalty is covered. And as we're unstrapped and set free, when we walk out, there's a limousine that's waiting for us. 
And, and, and we're put in the limousine and we're taken to this mansion. And, and we walk in and there's a person there that says, uh, you, you're going to be taken care of. You, you have been adopted into my family. You're somebody who has all rights and privileges. That's the grace upon grace upon grace that God has given to us. When it says that God has forgiven us as he's taken away our sins, he's carried our sins away from us. And this is something that the, the Jews knew all about because God had, had revealed these things to them. As you read the Levitical law, as you look in chapter 16 of, of uh, the Levitical law, it, it speaks of the Day of Atonement. And at the Day of Atonement, the high priest would take two male goats. And the, the male goats, these are perfect goats, would be brought before him, and he would take one. And he would, he would lay his hands upon the goat in a symbolic way of transferring his sins and the sins of the people to that goat. And they would tie a scarlet uh, thread around the goat and then they would, take, and they would take it to the edge of the camp and they would send it out into the wilderness. Have you ever heard somebody talk about a scapegoat? That's where it comes from. We, the sins of the people were laid upon that goat and it was sent away to carry away their sins. The Bible says as far as the east is from the west, God has removed our transgressions, our sins from us in the book of Psalms. And this is one picture of what God revealed. The second goat that was there, the high priest would then take it, and this goat would, would give its life. It would be sacrificed. And they would collect the blood of that goat. And they would also collect the, bull, the goat, the blood of a special bull. And the high priest would take the blood of the bull and the goat and he would go behind the veil of, that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple once a year on the Day of Atonement. And he would go to the Ark of the Covenant that had a covering called the Holismos, which means satisfaction, the mercy seat. And he would apply that, that blood of these, the bull and the goat on the, on the mercy seat. Now that blood, remember, Hebrews 10 told us, did not remove the penalty of sin. It said that it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to remove the penalty of sin. That was just like paying the minimum payment on your credit card. All it did was kept the charge account current, but it was still accruing interest and the balance was there. But when Jesus Christ came, Jesus Christ, John one twenty nine, said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God removed the penalty of sin from us. He gave to us, it says in verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. According to the riches of his grace. Has anybody here ever heard of John D. Rockefeller? You know who he was? John D. Rockefeller was a, a multimillionaire, and uh, in our day he'd be the equivalent of a billionaire. Well, back in the 30s, Rockefeller used to like to dress up in his, his best, you know, tuxedo, top, top hat, tails. He'd go out on the street, and he'd always have a photographer with him. And Rockefeller would walk the streets and uh, had a pocket full of dimes. And he would, he would find these uh, young boys who were street kids that were out there on the, the street, and Rockefeller would reach in his pocket, and he'd pull out a dime. And today that'd be equivalent of like getting a $10 bill or maybe a little better. So it's a nice thing. But he'd walk up to this boy and he'd hold out this dime and say, here, son, I have a dime for you. And the kid would look up, you know, wide-eyed and take this dime and they'd get the picture. Now, Rockefeller was giving out of his riches, right? Because he had, he had 
billion dollars or more in our day. A dime was nothing to Rockefeller. Now imagine he wanted to give according to his riches. What he would have done is he would have come up to these, these kids and he would have said, hey, I've got a gift for you. And they would have got in and ridden out to the countryside and there would have been one of these you know, massive estates and mansions and he would have said, hey, son, here are the keys. The place is yours. I bought and paid for this. It's all yours. That would have been giving according to his riches. The Bible tells us God gave to us out of his riches. Is that what your text says? It says he gave to us according to his riches. As you think about how much God has blessed us, this idea of grace upon grace and piling it on, it says he has given to us, uh, it says in verse 8, he, he gave according to his riches which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. That word lavished means just to pile it on, to keep heaping it on. And it says what he gave to us among many things was wisdom. And insight. The word wisdom means knowledge, and the word insight means understanding and discernment that leads to right action. You see, Paul isn't writing all this, and I'm not sitting here taking you through a mini seminary course just so we can fill your head with knowledge and so you can walk out of here and say, hey, I know a new word, dispensationalism. What I want you to understand is what God has given to us and why. God wants us to have information that goes from our head to our heart. And as it moves that 18 inches, it is then to go out through our hands and our feet and our life. And there's to be a change of heart that leads to a change of action. We saw in Ephesians 1, 4, where it says God's purpose was to make us holy and blameless. And we talked about how that word means to be set apart from sin and to be set apart to his service. Ephesians 1.11 tells us we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to what? His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. You see, what it's telling us here is God's purpose in saving us who are Gentiles is not so that we uh, are beneficiaries of all of the gifts of God. That's, that's a dual purpose. Yes, we have gotten a, a, a great thing, the gift of eternal life. We've been grafted in. But God has a dual purpose for us. Do you know what his purpose is in saving the Gentiles? If you read Romans chapter 11, verse 11, it says, Salvation has come to the Gentiles to make the Jews jealous. To make the Jews jealous. Remember, I told you the church has not replaced Israel. God has a purpose for the Jews. And we are beneficiaries of what God is doing. But he has a purpose, which is to bring the Jews to faith. As you read Ephesians 2.11 and following, we're going to come to that and go in depth what that means when we get to chapter 2. But there it says God has brought the Jews and Gentiles together in this new entity called the church. That's another part of his mystery that we'll go into in depth. But what he tells us here in Ephesians 1.11 through 12 is Paul makes clear that the Jewish believers of which, remember Paul's a Jew, he's one of them. He says we were the first to hope in Christ. What he's saying is God still wants the Jews to come to faith. God still wants the Jews to understand the revelation of who Jesus is and why he came. As you read in Romans 1.16, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Whether Jew or Gentile, Old Testament or New Testament, 
God has had one method of salvation throughout all history of mankind. God's plan from the beginning before the foundation of the earth, remember, we saw was that he predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters of God. It was to point us to the promise of the Messiah and to come to faith in him. God knew we needed a Savior, so he sent his son Jesus to save us. So if you're here this morning and you're saying, but Roger, I've got it all figured out. I've got my own plan and, you know, people like to say to me sometimes, me and the man upstairs, we've got it worked out. And I say, well, does that include Jesus Christ? Being your way home to heaven? No, 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 no. We've got an understanding. And I say, well, then you don't understand what the Bible says. Because in John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you think that you can get to God by any other way than his gift of grace, which came through the death of his son, Jesus, on the cross, brothers and sisters, you're not yet in the family. You're lost. But God says, I've given you a way home, and it is through grace and grace alone. Remember Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Paul says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. As we end today, I want to I share a, a final and true story with you. It's about a tragedy that happened in Chicago years ago. It was 1 o'clock in the morning, and the phone rang in the home of Dr. Leo Winters. Uh, Dr. Winters was an acclaimed surgeon. He was very skilled, and uh, there was a horrible accident that happened, and the hospital called him and said, Dr. Winters, we need you here immediately. There's a man whose life is in the balance, and we need, we need you to perform emergency surgery. Now, Dr. Winters, as he got up, knew he needed to get to the hospital as fast as he could. And, and, and the most expedient route to the hospital was through a bad part of Chicago. And he knew that it wasn't the, the best route, but he, he needed to get there. So he got in his car, and as he was driving through this part of town, he stopped at a red light. And suddenly the door to his car is jerked open. And there's a man wearing a, a hat and a gray flannel shirt who screams at Dr. Winters, I need your car, and he starts to try to drag him out of the car. Now, Dr. Winters doesn't care about his car at this moment. He just knows, I need to get to the hospital. So he holds on, he tries to explain to the man, I, I, you know, I'm trying to, the guy won't listen. He just throws him to the ground, and Dr. Winters sprawls across the street. The man jumps in and takes off in his car. Now, here he is in the, the middle of the night in this corner downtown uh, not downtown Chicago, in a, in a bad part of Chicago, and he can't, he can't get to the hospital. He eventually gets a ride in. He gets to the hospital, and as he comes running through the doors, he's, he's met by some of the medical staff who says to, you know, it's too late. The, the man passed away a, a while ago. And he, the, the person telling Dr. Winters the news says, now the father is here. And he's in the chapel crying, and he's wondering, why didn't the doctor come? And, and Dr. Winters wants to explain what had happened, so he hurries to the chapel, and as he goes in, he sees the father there crying, and as he gets close, he notices it's the man wearing the hat and the, the dirty gray flannel shirt. And as he looks into the eyes of this father, who was the one whose son he was coming to save, he wanted to say to him, you pushed away the very one who was sent to save your son. And I share that story this morning because there are some in our world who are pushing away the very one who was sent to save us. And you may be one of them. 
You may be a person who is saying, you know, I don't need God's Son to be my Savior. I can do it my way, or I have a different system of being saved. And the Bible is very clear there's only one way, only one way home to heaven. As you read Romans 10, 9 through 13, it says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. As you sit here this morning, the question that you need to answer is, have you received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? If what I've shared this morning seems overwhelming and confusing to you, I want you to come down to the issue of grace. God's grace that says you can't do it on your own and you don't have to do it on your own because God did it for us. He came and he went to the cross. He paid that penalty of death that I owe and you owe for your sins. And he says this morning that if you will confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believing that Jesus is who he said he was, God's son, the one who came, the one who died on the cross, the one who didn't just stay dead in a tomb, but he rose from the dead, showing he conquered sin and death. If you accept by faith that gift, then it says you will be saved. I'm going to end by leading you in a prayer. You don't have to walk the aisle. You don't have to raise your hand. But what you do have to do is humble yourself in your heart and say to God, God, I recognize I'm lost. I thought I was okay. I thought I could do it on my own. But I recognize today, God, I'm a sinner. I've made mistakes in my life. And because I'm a sinner, what it means is I owe a penalty, a penalty of death. But you, Jesus, came and you took my place. You paid that debt for me. Remember Romans 6.23, the wages, what we earn, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you'd like to receive God's great gift of grace and new life to you this morning, I invite you just to bow your heads and to pray this prayer with me, if that's your desire. Let's pray. Dear God, I'm a sinner. I'm somebody who's made mistakes in my life, and because of that, I, I realize I owe a penalty. A penalty I couldn't pay. But I thank you, God, that you loved me so much that you came and you took my place. You paid that penalty of death for me. You redeemed me. You carried away my sin and you you covered the ransom price. I thank you, God, for the great gift of new life that I have through you, Jesus, my personal Savior. Today, God, I'm turning from my sin, and I'm turning to your Son to be my Savior. Thank you for adopting me. Thank you for making me a part of your family. I pray these things in the name of my Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, I'm going to be at the front. We're going to have prayer leaders at the front as well. We'd love to talk to you to make sure you understand that step of faith you just took. And for the rest of us who have received God's gift of grace, what God calls on us to do is to be those who go out and share the good news of grace. You don't have to outline dispensationalism. You don't have to debate all these things. But what you do is you just let people know there is a free gift.
that comes through faith in Jesus. And he calls on us to be his messengers of faith.